The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Hi, everybody. Hi. Really glad you're here. Uh, you're very important to us, to me. I'm glad you're here. If you're new with us, we're especially glad you're here. It's always crazy to go to a new church for the first time. Can I get like an amen on that or something? Okay. Really happy that you're here. Uh, it's a thrill for me, especially because we're trying to start something new. So we're, we're, we're uh, you know, creating it out of, out of nothing. We've got a core group. We're trying to add on, build momentum. So thank you so much for being here. And um, so tonight, I, the, the job is to talk about the meaning of the Bible, or why should I trust the Bible? And I've got some overheads for us that'll help us follow along. But first, I want you to see uh, from Psalm 119, verse 5, see what the Bible says about itself or what Christians believe about the Bible. If you grew up in Sunday school world, you've heard of this one before. It says, uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the Christians see the Bible like light. You could even see it like a flashlight. So imagine you're, um, you ever go camping, car camping, okay, backpacking. <laughs> some of us are backpackers, some of us are car campers, some of us, some of us are like, that's why God made houses, you know, right? <laughs> why, why are you doing this? Okay, imagine you're, you're camping, we'll, we'll go with car camping tonight, and you've got a walk through the bushes to get to your car, and it's dark, it's in the middle of the night, and you get there and you, you, you drop your keys, and it's dark, it's in the bushes. What do you need? You need your flashlight. You need your flashlight. You turn that thing on. You find it. You see what you need. You see the way to go. The Bible is like that light in a dark world, rocky roads world, uh, wilderness all around. The Bible shows us what life is all about. It gives us the big picture story about what we're for, about um, what we're after. So Christians believe the Bible is light, and yet many wonder, right? Our world around us wonders. Wait, isn't the Bible just full of myths? You ever heard that one? The Bible's just full of myths, or how about this? The Bible's just another version of human opinion, right? Why should I trust it any more than I trust anything else? Or the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. So to the world around us, it's more like a fog than a light. This is incredibly important because the Bible's going to make claims on your life. It's going to ask you to commit fully. It's going to ask you to sacrifice. It's going to ask you to endure it's going to ask you to do things that you wouldn't do without it. So the big, the big, big question is, can you trust it enough to where it's worth the risk? Can you feel that? Because if you follow that Bible, it's a risk. You're going to risk. Um, is, can I trust it enough for it to be worth the risk? So is it, is it going to catch me when I fall? Huge question. So we... I guess the first thing I want to say is we can't do what's become so popular, which is to treat the Bible as a good book and not a divine book. Do you see the difference? If it's a good book, it's like a buffet at Sizzler, right? I'll take the bacon and the scrambled eggs. I'll leave the soggy broccoli for somebody else. If it's like a good book, you can read the part about loving your neighbor and helping the poor. And in our, in our culture, people are generally for that, right? So you can read those passages and be like, yes, and amen. But the other passages like judgment or a lot of other things that we struggle with, you'd be like, I oh, will leave those behind. It's a good book. We'll take advice. Except, except the Bible won't let you just call it a good book. 
It claims to be a divine book. From start to finish, it claims to be the word of God, which means the stakes are really high, okay? It's either a divine book, which there's a lot of scary implications with that. It's either a divine book or it's a waste of time. It's a history lesson, maybe. But it can't just be in the middle. It can't just be in the middle. So can it hold the weight it's asking for? So what we're talking about is, I guess, really, the idea of the inspiration of the Bible. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Bible from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's talking to Timothy. Timothy's a young leader in the church. And Paul says, you know the sacred writings by which, which are able to make you, what's the first thing? Wise for what? Salvation. Keep that in your pocket. What's it for? So know how to be saved through Christ. And then second, verse 16, all scripture is, he says, breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. Now, this doesn't mean a, a flaming um, meteor came down and he went and looked in it. Inside was a book. And it's not like that at all. Um, but it does mean that when the authors were writing in their context of the people they were writing to, God himself was over that process to make it worthwhile, to make it divine, to make it trustworthy. So we're talking about inerrancy, okay? Have you heard of that word before? Inerrancy. Now, I'm going to be a little academic with you tonight. I hope that's okay. I'm going to get our... How many of you are tired and you're like, I don't know if I can... <laughs> okay, I'm going to get a little academic with you tonight, all right? Thanks. All right, got some energy right here. I'm going to give you a definition of inerrancy. Are you, are you ready? Well, I'm taking a risk with you right here. Do you want to know this? I think you do. I think you need to think it through. What do we mean when we're saying the Bible is inerrant? Well, look at this definition. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original manuscripts and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether this has to do with doctrine or morality or social, physical, or life sciences. But there's some important disclaimers here first. Number one, when all the facts are known. We still don't know everything about everything, so there's still discoveries being made in archaeology or linguistic that give us the fuller sense of some of the details of the Bible, okay? We don't know everything. Number two, we're talking about original manuscripts, really important. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians the first time, that first thing he wrote, that was inspired by God and perfect. We have copies of that. So I'm not saying that every scribe throughout history was inspired by God. That would be ridiculous. They made many mistakes. Saying the original autographs, the original manuscripts are inspired by God, also properly interpreted. Sometimes I'm talking to people about the Bible and they're like, well, there's polygamy in the Bible. Yeah. But if you read the story, polygamy is shown in a negative light. It's bad. So, properly interpreted. What does the author mean to say? What did he mean to say to his original audience? Properly interpreted, those three things, when we know what we know and it's the original autographs, properly interpreted, those are wholly true in everything they, affor they affirm. The Bible is the word of God. That's, that's what I'm positing to you. It's the word of God and you can trust it. It's worth the risk. It's worth uh, leaning your full weight on it. And so when, when I make that claim, here's the two responses to that. Two most common objections in my experience from the gym to the university, Okay. Number one, wait, wait, wait. 
the, the, the Bible's been lost in translation, right? Have you heard this one? Copies of copies. What's the little game the kids used to play? Telephone, right? I'll whisper you something, and then you whisper it to your friend, and we'll go around in a circle. And in the end, it'll be like so different from the first thing that was said that it's totally unrecognizable. Isn't the Bible like that? Well, we just plug that in for a second. Do you think people trying to portray the meaning of the Bible were whispering it to each other? Um, but that's what we say. It's lost in translation, so it's the issue of accuracy, basically. So the question is, when you read the, the chair Bible in front of you, is that anything close to the original manuscript? That's the real question. So maybe you say, all right, the original manuscript was the word of God, but now we've lost it. You can't trust it. That's the first question. Is it accurate? Second question, what about all the contradictions? How many of you are worried about the contradictions in the Bible? <laughs> Easy audience, come on. Some of you doubt it a little bit. You wonder, what about all the contradictions? I get this a lot, but what about all the contradictions? So it's the issue of integrity. Am I reading the real thing? Is the real thing integrous or put together well? Are there any contradictions? So that's what I want to just try to address with you tonight, just those first two questions, okay? The issue of accuracy, the issue of integrity. Number one, when we're reading the Bible... Let's not forget, it's a historical document, right? It's trying to tell you about things that happened in history. This is a, this is a certain kind of knowledge. You know, if you want a certain biological knowledge, amputate the frog and you'll figure out how the frog works. But you can't do that with things in history, can you? They happened once. So if I asked you what you ate for breakfast a couple weeks ago when you went to Mel's, if you remember, you'll say, well, I had the... Um, the Grand Slam or whatever they give you, I don't know. How am I going to prove that that's true? I can't take you apart and put you in a, a test tube. Okay, it's too late for that. If I wanted to know, first of all, if you're generally trustworthy, I'd be like, all right, that's what they had. And then say you went to, the, to, to breakfast with somebody else, I could ask them what you had. And they'd be like, I don't know. But if they remembered, they could tell me, oh, they had, they had this. And would that count as knowledge, historical knowledge? Okay? The way to know historical knowledge is to listen to the accounts of the witnesses. Now, what do you want? Do you want a lot of accounts or do you want a few accounts? A lot. I want to hear as much testimony as possible. And then when you listen to testimony, it's just like in a courtroom, right? The, the investigator, the, uh, they're looking for as much testimony as possible and they're putting all the stories together to harmonize them, to come up with as much color and detail as they can about that event. So the Bible is a historical record. It's more than that, but it's not less. It's not less. So the more accounts we have, and the more copies of the accounts, the better. Are you tracking? All right, let's look at ancient history. Bible's a document of ancient history. There's four things we want to consider. Author, date, copies, and distance. Author, date, copies, and distance. How many of you have heard of Plato? It's not the stuff you play with as a kid. It's a philosopher, right? Some of you had to study him. Plato, well, when did he write? 400 B.C., long time ago. Do we still count what he wrote as him being important? Uh, do we know what he wrote? Yes. Do we study it? Yes. Can we understand his thoughts? Yes. Well, some of us. Okay. 400 B.C., how many copies do we have? Seven. Does anybody doubt the integrity of what we have from Plato and say, we don't really know if Plato wrote this? No, we, we read it. We call it Plato. Seven copies. Now, how much distance between the original 
and the copy we have. Now, do you understand that question? One day, Plato wrote what he wrote. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. How much distance between the oldest manuscript we have and the original for Plato? This will blow your mind. 1,200 years. That's a long time. And we read Plato. Copies of the copies of the copies of the copies. We have it. We know what he said. Tacitus was an ancient Roman historian. He wrote in the first century A.D. How many copies of him? Three. How much distance between the first writing and the, uh, the, the original manuscript and the, and the earliest copy? 800 years. Homer. How many of you had to read Homer in high school and you still wish you didn't have to? He wrote in 900 B.C. 643 copies. It's pretty good. Pretty good collection. How much distance between the earliest or the original and the earliest copy? 500 years. All right, they can't hang with the New Testament. They cannot hang with the New Testament. When was the New Testament written? The earliest book was probably AD 50. That's 20 years after Jesus. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The last one, maybe 80 at the latest, maybe 90, okay? First century. How many copies in the Greek? 5,800 copies. If you add the Latin copies that came a little later, you're up to nearly 14,000 manuscripts. That is a lot. And how much distance between the, ori- the original manuscript from the earliest copy? 30 years? 40 years? Just a couple of years ago, they found a, a document of Mark that they're dating from um, before 100 AD. That's a copy. They also found one from Hebrews. It's fantastic. There's nothing like it. The New Testament is unbelievable as far as the number of copies we have and how early those copies are. Do you see what I'm saying here? If you trust any ancient history at all as being reliable, you have to give some weight to the New Testament. You'd be irrational not to. So, the question is, okay, so we've got all these copies. Are they consistent? Well, how many of you heard of something? I told you I'm going to be academic tonight. How many of you heard of textual variance before? Okay, so Paul wrote whatever he wrote. And then we've got copies of copies of copies. And then I could look at this copy and this copy. And maybe I'm reading one letter and one verse. And I'm like, oh, this, this phrase in this copy is different from the phrase in that copy. So that's a challenge, right? Which one's right? Or is either one of them right? And so this number can kind of scare you because, what, there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants. Okay? Hundreds of thousands. And yet, let's remember, how many manuscripts do we have? A lot. Okay? That's like 12 a manuscript. Most of them are so vanilla they don't get any attention. Like a word is misspelled, that counts. Or the dog ran, the dog was running. Anybody care about that one? It's that kind of an idea. Or a missing conjunction, who cares? One scholar says less than 3% are interesting enough to make it into your footnotes. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But not only that, you know, let's say I gave you a manuscript of everything I said tonight. And I marked out some of the words up here and some over there and some down here, but it was different for every one of you. And each one of you had one of those. If you got together and you looked at each copy, could you rebuild what I said based on the other copies? Easy. Easy, you could. 
Same thing with the New Testament. We have all that we need. In fact, the more copies and the more varieties of the copies we have, the better, because that gets us closer to understanding the original. So really, scholars say, when you're reading the New Testament in your regular chair Bible, you are reading something that is 99.9% accurate as far as what the original said. You're reading the original. It's accurate. Even Bart Ehrman. Anybody heard of Bart Ehrman before? He's like the poster boy for skeptics, if you want to be a skeptic. He's made a lot of money out of being a skeptic. Even Bart Ehrman in an interview said this, and most people who read him don't realize he said this. He said, the essential Christian beliefs are what? Not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Okay. How deep do you want me to go? You want me to show you one example? I'm going to. Look at Mark 141. What's it saying? Mark, moved with pity, it's Jesus, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So the word in red is pity. Okay? Now this is one of the biggest textual variants we have. In one early manuscript, it said Jesus was moved with anger. And the other one says he's moved with compassion. Okay? So my son is here tonight, Jackson Ford, fine strapping young man right here. If, uh, if someone was injuring him, what would I feel? I would feel anger that he was injured. What else would I feel? Compassion, pity, because I love him and I care about him. Was Jesus filled with anger or compassion when he saw people hurting that he cared about? (laughs) Yes. It's anger. It's compassion. Is is that going to, oh, I can't believe the Bible. You know, throw it out. He felt anger or he felt compassion. Really? That's what we're talking about with textual variants. They don't, they give color to the meaning. They don't change the content at all. So I'm going to quote from you uh, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, who was the librarian of the British Museum, an authority on ancient manuscripts, okay? Get nerdy tonight, folks. Both the authenticity and general integrity of the books in the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. You can trust it. I'm focusing on the New Testament tonight for time-wise. Plus, if you believe the New Testament, that's going to pretty much define what you believe about the Old Testament. New Testament, you can trust it. You're reading the real thing. So hopefully I'm, I'm helping to answer that first question. If when I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading the original, and the answer is quite plainly, yes. Yes, I am. Two, okay, what about all the contradictions? This is one of my favorite questions. I hope one of you will ask me about this later. Well, let's first of all remember, since we're being nerdy tonight, what contradiction actually means. The law of contradiction basically says something can't be both true and not true at the same time in the same context. Okay? So if I asked uh, two of you about what we did tonight, and one of you said, well, we sang a couple of songs, and then uh, this dude talked for a while. Somebody Somebody else would say, well, we sang three songs, and a lady prayed, and then a guy spoke for a while. Which one was right? They were, they were both right. They're both right. They're different ways, different accurate ways of looking at the same event. Have you ever said, oh, yeah, everybody was there? Did you mean every single person in the whole world? No. But what if somebody said, contradiction? Come on, man. It's language. Or, you know... Speaking of my son, he likes humor like this. You know, I love chocolate. Do you want to marry it? 
Okay? It brings into the idea that don't we use the same word for different meanings? We do. Is the Bible allowed to use real language? Okay? Real language means sometimes a word in one context will mean this a little bit, and it's got a little bit of different meaning in another context, just like we use language all the time. How do we know what it means? Well, context tells us. What's going on around it tells us. You can find out. But all of those things get pulled out as contradictions. I was on an atheist website. If you want a good laugh, look at some of these atheist websites. And I'll say, oh, contradiction in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, no one is righteous. And in the Psalms it says, I'm righteous, God, keep your promises. Ah, contradiction. Well, not really. What Paul is saying is that on our own, we're not righteous. We need God to do things for us. And what David is saying in the Psalms is, I've trusted your promise. You've made me righteous with you. So help me, save me. Is that a contradiction? Of course not. It's not a contradiction. So a lot of the things that we might call contradictions, they really aren't when we think about it. So are there contradictions in the Bible? Which one bothers you the most? And that's really the way to answer that question. What about all the contradictions? If you say that to me, the next thing I'm going to say is, which contradiction? Which one bothers you? If you're really sharp on your toes, you might say, well, when Jesus heals the blind men. In Matthew, there's two blind men. Jesus heals them. And in Mark, there's only one. Contradiction. Is that a contradiction? It would be a contradiction if Mark said there was one and only one, not two, blind men. Instead, Mark actually says, and it's not up there, Mark actually says a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Mark gives his name, Matthew doesn't. Why do you think Mark gives his name? We don't really know, but a good guess is his audience knows who the guy is. That's why he mentions the name. Hey, you guys know this guy. Mark is saying, this is evidence. Remember, he was blind. Now he sees. It's Bartimaeus. It's the son of that guy. So Mark had a reason to mention his name. And he only brings out the one because that's his point. Hey, remember this guy? You knew him. Matthew says there were two. Matthew's, Matthew doesn't know Bartimaeus or, or his audience doesn't. He doesn't care. There, there were two. Jesus healed them both. Is it a contradiction? Of course not. It's two different people reporting on an event for their own reasons it's totally fair, totally right to do, to, to make a point to their audience. That's what we're talking about, folks. Or maybe some Old Testament manuscripts, because they're so old and there's copies of copies, the numbers are fudged in, uh, from Chronicles to Kings or something. But it's copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And if that's a contradiction, look, they had the, the zero got marked out. That's not how it works in Hebrew. But to me, that doesn't bother me at all. Okay, it's not a contradiction. So what contradiction? That's what I want to know. Or there was a YouTube video with Jack Black. That's his name, right? Comedian, actor guy. Okay, and he's all dressed up as Jesus, and it's just making fun of Christianity. And Jesus comes out with a shrimp cocktail. And the joke is, you know, in the Old Testament, you can't eat shrimp, right? And so now contradiction, because you can eat seafood. Because the Old Testament says no seafood. New Testament says you can now, I'm not going to get into Old Testament law right here, but let's just say that God had a lot of things for the Israelites to, to make them different than all the other nations, and some of it was dietary. Some of it's symbolic stuff. I'm not going to get into it, but he did have some rules that, to make them different, to set them apart. Then when Jesus came, he said this in Matthew 5:17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? I filled them up. I fixed it. 
I brought it to a new maturity. And so for Christians, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament we don't do, and it's not because it's a contradiction. It's because what? Jesus fulfilled it. He's what makes us different, not the dietary stuff. He fulfills the Old Testament. So it's a contradiction for us to eat bacon. No, praise the Lord, right? Um, Jesus brought the new covenant. It's not a contradiction at all. If you're going to call that a contradiction, that means you have to say it's a logical contradiction to tell a kid he can't drive until he's 16. Dad, can I drive? No. 15. 16. Dad, can I drive? Yes. Contradiction. No. Maturity. Maturity. And that's exactly what's happening in the Bible. The Old Testament is made to tell you a lesson, to get you ready for something. And then it comes to maturity in Jesus. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, when you read it, you're reading the real thing. And two, it has incredible integrity. There's no contradictions. Now plug this into your brains. This is what's really special about the Bible. It's not one book. It's 66 books. It's written by 40 different authors, including fishermen, doctors, kings, prophets, tax collectors. It's written over a period of 1,500 years. It's written in three different languages, in different contexts, from palaces to prisons. And it has incredible unity, integrity as one story from start to finish. Now, today's movies can't even keep a plot straight. And the Bible does it from start to finish over 1,500 years, 40 different audiences. That is just absolutely mind-boggling. Look what Craig Blomberg says about the Bible. Another long, nerdy quote for you. The theological unity of Scripture, even amid all its diversity, enables readers of all 66 books to discern a coherent narrative plot profound wisdom, and a meta-narrative that explains human nature from its, original, from its origins to its final destiny. No other anthology of literature in the history of the world even attempts to undertake all three of these tasks simultaneously. It's one story. It's the meta-narrative. Meta-narrative means it's the big story. It tells you what life is all about. It's the light. It's the lamp. It explains everything. From human nature, origins to destiny, it's the only one that can do it. There's no contradictions. It's one story. That's amazing. C.S. Lewis said, he's an author, and he said, um, I believe in the sun not just because I see it, because I see everything else by it. I believe in the sun not just because I see it, but I see everything else by it. And that's the way it works uh, for him with Christianity. I don't just see it, the claims of Christianity. It explains everything to me. And I'll tell you right now, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because all the other options are so pitiful for understanding life. Uh, um, it's, it's the honest truth. And so if you're, if you're doubting Christianity, I want you to know we're so glad you're here. And doubts are important, and we want to respect those doubts. We want to ask those questions. If Christianity is true, it can handle your questions, Right? So ask your questions. You can ask me any question you want. I'll listen to that. I'll entertain it as much as I can. Um, ask questions. But just do me a favor and doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. A lot of times your doubts never get doubted. 
When, you doubt, when I doubt my doubts, I find that, that the Bible holds water better than anything else in the world. Doubt your doubts. So one thing I hear is, well, I could never believe the Bible. It's written by human authors. You've heard that before? I get that one. I could never believe the Bible. It's written by humans. Okay. Can we doubt that doubt just for a second? Here's, a, here's Joe doubting the Bible because the Bible's written by human authors. Okay? But Joe feels secure in doubting the Bible in doubting the Bible, because it's written by human authors. Okay, so doubt this doubt. What do you know about Joe? What is Joe? Joe is a human. Do you see the problem here? What standard is Joe using to doubt the Bible? Himself, a human standard. I can't trust the Bible because it's written by humans. And how do you know that? Because I, a human, Know that. So you're trusting, you're trusting this one human rather than this incredible book? Because we could ask Joe, I mean, if we're having an honest conversation, Joe, have you ever been wrong before? Yes. Okay. Are your feelings ever stupid? Yes. Do, do you ever switch back and forth? Yes. Are you always trustworthy? No. Have you ever lied? Yes. Are you worth your ultimate trust? Because I agree, in general, you shouldn't trust. You shouldn't just trust every human. You shouldn't. We lie. We're unfaithful. But the Bible is different. It really is inspired by God. And you can see evidence of that. It's worthy of your trust. Remember I said, the Bible is like a light. It's a lamp into my feet. And you turn it on. You're camping, and you drop your keys, and you can't find them, and your flashlight, there they are, and now I've got the key. Now I can get into the car, okay? Tonight, just for a little bit, we've been looking at the light. You ever like to do that when you're camping? You turn on your flashlight, and you can see, it looks like a lightsaber, you know? You can see it shine. You can see the beam of light shining in the air. That's cool. We've been looking at the light. We've been looking at the Bible. But remember, a flashlight is usually not something you just... You stare into, right? Okay, look at the light a little bit. Is it shining? Yes. You're looking at the light. But really, a flashlight, you're meant to look, what? Through the light at something else. Through the light at something else. So really, when I come to the Bible, if I have, if I have convinced you that the Bible's trustworthy a little bit, that's, only, that's, that's really just a little bit of what I want to do. And I don't have... Any time for, except for anything other than a conclusion. But if I just want you to see the Bible's trustworthy so you can look through the light at, look with me at Luke 24. This is what Jesus says, uh, recorded by Luke, a historian. Luke begins his gospel by saying, I have researched everything as much as I possibly can. And this is what Jesus said. This is the resurrected Jesus. He's already died. He rose physically. He's appeared to his disciples and this is what he said. Look at Luke 24, verses 44 to 48. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about what? Me. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What's the Bible for? Jesus is saying, so you can see me. Verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should what? Suffer, and on the third day, 
rise. That, what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses. Work backwards. We want to see what happened in history. We need what? Witnesses. The apostles are those witnesses. They died for their testimony. They suffered for their testimony. They're united in their testimony. Not one broke, and they all said, we've seen him, he's alive. You have to ask yourself, would you die to spread a lie that causes you to suffer? No. Would a group of leaders all stay united in in dying and suffering for what they knew to be a lie? No. They're telling you he's alive. And the point is that as you read the scriptures, they're writing the Bible, you would see that the Old Testament is all about, let me sum up for the Old Testament for you. Look, this all started great, but you guys are a screwed up mess. Started great, but you're a screwed up mess. It's because you rebelled against God. You turned. And so the Old Testament is saying two things. Man, you need Jesus so bad. And Jesus is coming. Every single thing. Man, you need him. Oh, and he's coming. And then you get to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The good news. And they're saying, he's here. He's here. And all the other letters are saying, this is what it means that he came. So Jesus is saying, when you turn on the light of the witnesses, the flashlight of the Bible, what are you supposed to see? Him. You're supposed to see him. You're supposed to see that he died. Why did he die? You know it, don't you? In your heart, you sinned. You've rebelled. You've broken God's commands. Backwards and forwards. I stand right there with you. I have too. Big time. And I'm I'm deserving of punishment because God is just and holy. He hates what's evil. He should. But God is so gracious and loving that he gave his son, the only one to ever live the perfect life. And he died as a substitute in your place, in my place. He took it for me. And he rose to show who he is, that good wins, that he has saved. And so the offer is, can you see through the light of the Bible what you're supposed to see? It's Jesus, and he's offering you repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what's repentance? Simply, it just means to turn. You're going one way, and you're like, this is stupid. I'm killing myself. I see Jesus now, and what do you do? I'm going to turn the other way. I want to follow him. I want to follow him. And as you turn, you trust in him, you repent. Guess what you get? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is great. <laughs> when, you feel, when you know you're guilty and God says it's all good, took it away, I love you. You're like, I don't deserve this. He says, I know, but I love you. He says, but I, I'm not worthy of this. I know Jesus took it for you. And he says, I want to adopt you as my child. I love you. Come into my family. Let me put you into my family. You say, how can this be? I've sinned against you. He says, I know, but Jesus did it for you. You guys, that's the point of the Bible. It's trustworthy. It's accurate so that you can see Jesus and belong to God through him. That's why the Bible. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to turn the lights down. Um, we're going to give you a time of response where you can just think about what was said here. 
Uh, you could pray. If you've trusted in Christ, even if you're just trusting in Christ right now, we've got the Lord's Supper set up over here. There's bread and there's juice. The bread stands for his body was torn for you, for your salvation to bring you into the family. The juice stands for his, his blood. It was shed for you to bring you into the family. If you trust Christ, Elder Ed's going to be over here. You can come take communion. Just come get it whenever you want. But we're just going to give you some space to respond. Some silence, a song, think, pray. Um, just see. Are you looking to see Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful for this amazing book, your word, that shows us who you are. God, I pray for everybody here and for their doubts, and I just ask that you'd help them to work through that, and that you'd be working to draw people to yourself. Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you for every single person. They're beautiful to you. They're important. And uh, I just pray that you'd be speaking to them, showing them your love, your goodness, your truth. They can trust you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.